my goodness, how are you? Fine. Come on in, come on in, you guys. Go I in. love the way you dress. Let me <laughs> hug you. you. The students always ask me, are you still friends with Aki? <laughs> I remember when I asked a question, I said, yes, she's still my friend. <laughs> of course we are. That will never change. That's Aki Munamitsu Nakauchi and Sylvia Mendez seeing each other again after about two years apart. They first became friends more than 70 years ago. Tragic circumstances caused their lives to intersect. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Aki was six years old, living on her family farm in Westminster, California. Hers was a loving family with her father Seima, her mother Masako, her older brothers Seiko, who went by Tad and Seilo, and her twin sister Kazuko. Aki's father had come to the United States as a young man seeking opportunity. All four of the children were American citizens by birth. The fears unleashed by Pearl Harbor would rage across the United States and lead to dramatic changes in the life of the Munamitsu family. They would be uprooted from their farm and relocated to an internment camp for three years. They would lease their farm to the Mendez family, who would work the land and hold on to the farm for the Munamitsus until their return from incarceration. The resilience of the Munamitsu family would create a legacy of generosity that continues to this day. In the last episode of the Deeper Learning Podcast, you learned about how Sylvia Mendez and her family, while living on the Munamitsu farm, challenged the discriminatory practice of school segregation in Orange County, California. In this episode, we'll focus on Aki's story. You'll find out about how the internment of Japanese-American families during World War II came about, how families like the Munamitsus endured that experience, and how they rebuilt their lives and made extraordinary contributions to American society. Why are we here? What does it mean to live a good life? How can we make a difference in the world for our children and the generations that will follow? How can we make education a force for good? This is Jeff Hittenberger. In this podcast, you'll hear amazing stories about people who have pursued these questions often against great odds, who have made a difference in the world. People who can point us in the direction of doing the same. Let's get started. In 1940, before the internment, there were 130,000 people living in Orange County, compared to over 3 million who live here today. This was a farming region, and some of the best farmers were people of Japanese ancestry, like Aki's father, Seima. For kids like Aki and Sylvia, farm life was full of fun and adventure. We would play so much, remember? And then we would go, and then uh, what they had at the farm, which was really neat, was uh, just like in Japan, they had the, the, the bath where you put the fire underneath the, the big... Yeah, you heat the whole tub, but before you go in, you actually, you know, clean soap off outside, and then you soak in this, like a hot tub. Yes. Yeah. And there was two of them, mm-hmm. so they'd be in one and we'd be in you the know, other one, we could hear them play. Oh, that was, was so, oh my God, that was so much fun. We could fun. hear each other, huh? <laughs> We're going, shh, shh. <laughs> <laughs> that was so much fun. Though. Yeah, it was fun. About 1,800 people of Japanese heritage lived in Orange County in 1940. 
They had started arriving after Japan's Meiji Restoration in 1867, which overthrew the old samurai system and uprooted many people from traditional lands in an all-out quest for modernization. In America, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 had barred Chinese immigrants, providing Japanese immigrants with an opportunity to fill the labor gap. Japanese immigrants began to find a foothold in industries like farming, but soon met resistance. In 1906, the San Francisco Board of Education decided to segregate students of Asian descent, and many other districts followed suit. In 1913, California passed the Alien Land Law that made it impossible for first-generation Japanese immigrants to own land. The United States Supreme Court upheld the land laws in 1923. Young Japanese immigrants like Seima Munamitsu, who was 27 years old in 1923, were barred from becoming naturalized citizens and from owning land in California and in many other states that passed similar laws. Seima and other first-generation immigrants from Japan are known as Issei. But Seima was a strategist in addition to being a gifted farmer, and he had a newborn son, Tad, who was an American citizen by virtue of his birth in California, thanks to the 14th Amendment, which states that all persons born in the United States are citizens of the United States and of the state in which they reside. Tad, as an American citizen, would be able to own land, and the way was opened for the Munamitsu family to acquire a farm of their own. The second generation of Japanese Americans, known as the Nisei, were key to the economic fortunes of many families. So in spite of land laws, naturalization laws, and immigration exclusion laws, Japanese American families began to succeed in California and to contribute disproportionately to the Orange County economy due to their expertise and hard work. My brother is the one that had to intervene and do all the work, all the paperwork, all the footwork. He was only 12 when he started. I can't believe it. Yeah, yeah. But he's only 12 years old. And I was told that he went to the bank and here's this little kid wandering around the bank. And Mr. Monroe's, you know, he's like, what? And so he went out to talk to him and evidently he took a liking to him. Mr. Monroe was a banker in Garden Grove, California, who handled the Munamitsu family farm business. Tad served as the translator and representative for his father. The family was able to make progress and the farm was thriving. Aki and her twin sister were born in 1935. They were in kindergarten on the day the bombs fell on Pearl Harbor, the day everything changed. Resentment toward Japanese immigrants had been growing in California for a number of years. When the war began, that resentment was easily stirred up by biased media reports and by politicians who failed to distinguish between Japanese Americans on the one hand and the imperialist regime of Japan on the other. No evidence existed to support the assertion that Japanese Americans would serve as a fifth column paving the way for Japanese invasion of the West Coast. Investigative reports showed no collusion between the Pacific Coast Japanese American communities and the regime in Japan. But California political leaders joined others in calling for a removal of all people of Japanese ancestry from the Pacific states. Even California Attorney General Earl Warren, who would later be known as a champion of civil liberties, a supporter of the Mendez lawsuit against segregation, and as the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court who authored the Brown v. Board of Education ruling, even Earl Warren joined the chorus of voices calling for exclusion using the harshest racial terms. On February 19, 1942, just two months after Pearl Harbor, President Franklin Roosevelt, he of the Four Freedoms speech, issued Executive Order 9066, which stated, 
I hereby authorize and direct the Secretary of War to prescribe military areas in such places and of such extent as he or the appropriate military commander may determine from which any or all persons may be excluded. The west coast of the United States was quickly declared a military zone, thus paving the way for the forced relocation of over 110,000 people of Japanese ancestry, two-thirds of whom were American citizens. This is Judge Douglas Hachimonji of the Superior Court of California, County of Orange. My mother's family uh, ended up at, in Poston, Poston, Arizona, and my father's uh, family were uh, relocated to Heart Mountain, Wyoming. Keep Poston in mind. That's where Aki and part of her family ended up as well. So how could this have happened? How could law-abiding American citizens be taken from their homes, be required to leave their land and possessions behind, and be incarcerated in camps surrounded by barbed wire and secured by armed guards and watchtowers? Here's Judge Hachimonji. We know historically uh, that the factual basis to justify that wholesale evacuation of people was unfounded. We know that in retrospect. As we know, there were a number of individuals who resisted those initial orders. A gentleman named Hira Bayashi that first questioned the curfews, and then a man named Korematsu who uh, resisted the evacuation, was convicted of violating the law for failing to report and be relocated. Those cases made their way to the United States Supreme Court, and um, the United States Supreme Court ratified, approved of those orders issued by the military governor's government in the Western United States. With no legal recourse, the Munamitsus were faced with the possibility of losing their land. They needed allies, and they found them in Mr. Monroe and the Mendez family. Gonzalo Mendez and his wife Felicitas were looking for a farm, just as the Munamitsus were on the verge of losing theirs. Mr. Monroe was the banker who brought them together and brokered a deal whereby the Mendez family would lease the Munamitsu farm, work it while the Munamitsu family was gone, and then turn it back over to them when they returned to Westminster. So Mr. Monroe drew up a lease agreement. You can see the original agreement today at Chapman University, signed by Gonzalo Mendez and Tad Munamitsu. Janice Munamitsu, Tad's daughter, found the original lease when she was sorting through her parents' effects after her mother passed away. This is Janice, Aki's niece and Tad's daughter, representing the third generation of the Munamitsu family in the United States. One of the things I think is so unique about it is that uh, the banker who introduced my father to Mr. Mendez uh, was Caucasian. He was very community-minded. Um, I never met him, but every Christmas we would go visit his widow and take a gift and visit her. And I never understood why, other than my dad would say, oh yeah, no, we've known, her husband used to help me at the bank and we've known them forever. So there's Mr. Monroe, uh, Mr. Mendez, um, our family. And it's, it's kind of like the bias and prejudice um, that existed to put the Japanese in the internment camps. Um, then Mr. Mendez, and uh, Sylvia and his family experienced um, segregation in the schools. And then Mr. Marcus, who is the attorney and of Jewish heritage, played a role. And so it's, it's very interesting because there were 
really neighbors helping neighbors, regardless of race, right? So the Munamitsu family had to leave the farm they loved. Seima Munamitsu was incarcerated in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Like so many other leaders in the Japanese Issei community, he would be separated from his family for three long years. Aki and her mother and twin sister were designated for the internment camp at Poston, Arizona. But Aki didn't get to go to Poston right away. We didn't go to camp with my parents. We were put in a house, we were put into the hospital because we had measles. And so we were left behind at the hospital and it was like chaos, I think, for the people in the hospital because my sister and I, we were, there was two of us and we just, we didn't know what to do. We just kept playing and running, <laughs> running up and down the halls because we weren't really that sick. It was just measles. So uh, we had a great time at the hospital. Isn't that odd? We had to get on a train. We got on a train with uh, a lady. I guess she was going to be our caretaker. And then we got all the way over to the camp in Arizona because we were in Phoenix, uh, not Phoenix, in Poston, P-O-S-T-O-N, that camp. Uh, and as we went by the uh, train station, I could see my mother. She was standing there waiting for us. Yeah, it was kind of like, wow. Yeah, I go, there's mom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she was just, poor thing. She was crying, you know. It was sad. Poston, officially known as the Colorado River Relocation Center, was in the Arizona desert, located on an Indian reservation. At 71,000 acres, it was the largest of 10 so-called relocation centers. Other Japanese Americans were held in Justice Department detention camps and other incarceration facilities. Poston, with a peak population of over 17,000, became in effect the third largest city in Arizona during the three years Japanese Americans were held there. Rows and rows of wood and tar paper barracks were quickly erected after Executive Order 9066 was issued. The vast majority of Japanese Americans living in Orange County ended up at Poston, along with residents of Los Angeles, San Diego, Monterey, Fresno, and several other California counties. Hot, windy, and dusty, with public toilets and showers lacking curtains or stalls, the internees were left to their own ingenuity to make these barracks livable. Judge Hachimonji, whose mother lived in the camp, reflects on the different experiences of internees of different ages. You know, the experiences, I think, for all of them were um, the same in the sense of dislocation, uh, in the se sense of the strangeness of the environment, um, the uh, ruggedness of the environment, the nature of sort of deprivation of creature comforts uh, when they first ended into the camps. The reactions um, of their generation differed greatly based upon their age. Um, so my mother's eldest sister, who was 10 years older than she was, um, was a newlywed and um, was pregnant with their first child and her experience was much more difficult emotionally and physically uh, than it was for my mother who was as I said in her early teens. Uh, as a newlywed for instance the lack of privacy uh, was a particularly emotionally jarring sort of experiences 
has probably been expressed. You know, they all ended up in the same small, confined, tar-papered uh, rooms. Um, entire families were placed in these small rooms. And so those kinds of deprivations were, were particularly difficult on somebody, for instance, my aunt's age. Because she was six years old at the time the internment began, Aki's memories are those of a child in the camp. Well, it was barracks. I remember it was, you know, just wooden barracks. And I think there was one, two, three families to each barracks. They were partitioned off. But basically, it was just a room that you could divide into a bedroom, a living room, whatever. And then they had the, uh, as far as the showers and things were, they were down over here. It was like a communal, windy. Mm -hmm. All I, you know, I don't remember being cold or hot too much, maybe because I was a child, but I do remember the strong winds and the dust storms. Yeah, there was a lot of dust storms. The conditions were bleak at best, but for the most part, the Japanese Americans made the best of things through their resilience and mutual care. Judge Hachimonji. They were, as much as anybody else, part of the greatest generation. And so I don't think that um, resilience was particularly um, uh, unique to uh, the Japanese-American community. I think it, resilience is probably the overriding characteristic of the greatest generation, at least for this country. Um, and so I say that. But I know that my parents' generation uh, was raised to be strong and be uncomplaining in the sense of wallowing in self-pity. That's a, that's a concept that was as foreign to them as anything. Um, they, uh, you know, were raised to get up and get moving. At some of the internment camps like Poston and Manzanar, there were protests against the incarceration, and some of these led to crackdowns by camp authorities. Challenges to this mass incarceration continued as cases like those of Hirabayashi and Korematsu continued to work their way through the courts with frustrating results. Those who might have been allies like Earl Warren, Franklin Roosevelt, the press, and even many civil liberties organizations failed to raise their voices in opposition to this injustice. Still, thousands of Nisei, those second-generation Japanese Americans, left the camps to join the United States military. The celebrated 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up almost completely of Japanese-American soldiers, fought with valor in Europe. About 14,000 Japanese-Americans would serve in the 442nd during World War II, with over 9,000 earning Purple Hearts awarded to those wounded or killed while serving. This was just the most dramatic form of patriotic expressions that were evident across the Japanese-American communities. Here's Janice Munamitsu on her mother's patriotism. My mother loves the American flag. If there was an American flag in a newspaper or a magazine, she would cut it out. She would save it. She would put it on her bulletin board. Um, many, many American flag pins. It wasn't like she bought them, but you know, when you were to receive one or something. Um, and I'm talking a lot. When I went through her home after she passed, I'm like, what is it with all of these American flags? But I just read an article, and they put it very well. They said, one of the, about the internment camp, they said um, they received a gift of an American flag when they, before they went into the camp. 
And that was, these were schoolboys, and that, they believed that was their principal's way of saying, you're an American. And I thought, wow, I think that's why my mother treasured the American flag. Their claim to be Americans had been challenged in the most brutal way. Japanese Americans found many ways to say, we are Americans, we love this country. Not a single Japanese American was convicted of espionage or collusion with Japan. Life at the camp was often characterized by tedium. To stay active, Aki's mother, Masako, signed up to work in the kitchen. Tad went to Denver on a work program. Aki and her sister went to school every day. Many dedicated teachers worked at the camps, including Aki's first grade teacher, Miss Smith, who was African-American. But these teachers faced very challenging circumstances. One wrote, The way of the school teacher is hard. The way of a school teacher in a relocation center is almost impossible. To begin with, there's a basic dilemma of trying to teach American democracy to children in an undemocratic situation. Still, dedicated educators like Quaker leader Clarence Pickett worked to open opportunities for college-age students like Aki's older brother Salo to leave camp and attend college. Salo attended Carleton College in Minnesota and went on to become a surgeon. Author Joanne Oppenheim's book, Dear Miss Breed, includes a compilation of letters sent to a public librarian in San Diego by children from her neighborhood who were now living in the camps. Here's one of those letters from Poston. Dear Miss Breed, through the relentless efforts of Poston 3's school principal, Ms. Cushman, and the faculty, Poston 3 High School this spring became an accredited high school and the name which changed to Parker Valley High School. It is magnificent the way the students have striven for higher education. The first year here found them in makeshift barrack classrooms. When construction of the school began, the whole community volunteered in making adobe bricks for the school buildings. Yes, the students can rightfully be proud to say, it's my school, for they built it with sweat and toil during the hot summer days that Poston is noted for. The class gift was a beautiful American flag. Education played a key role during the internment and afterward as families recognized that education would be key to success in American society. Here's Janice. I just remember um, my father saying to me that education is really important and, um, and I, I never didn't think I'd go to college. I always knew I would go to college. But he said, education is so important because it's one, one of the things that they could never take away from you. And when you think about it, it is one of the things that education, faith, you know, your, your history, those are things that no one can ever take away from you. Um, and so I think education equals opportunity. On December 18, 1944, the Supreme Court ruled in ex parte endo that the United States could not hold loyal citizens in detention without cause, laying the legal groundwork for closing the camps. On that same day, the War Relocation Authority announced its intention to close all of its camps within six to 12 months. On August 6, 1945, an atomic bomb devastated the city of Hiroshima. Three days later, another bomb did the same to Nagasaki. On August 15th, Emperor Hirohito declared unconditional surrender and brought an end to World War II in the Pacific. By the end of 1945, all but one of the camps had been closed and the Japanese Americans released. For many, the challenge became where to go since many lost their homes and land because of the relocation. 
and because many American communities continued to express hostility toward Japanese Americans. As for the Munamitsus, they had a farm to return to in Westminster, a farm kept safe and productive by the Mendez family. And on that farm in Westminster, Aki and Sylvia became fast friends. And people tell me, I can't believe that you still consider her a friend or everything. And I said, well, why wouldn't we? But she said, after all these years, most people lose connection or I don't know what they, what, what it is. They have no memory of it or what? Yeah. They were so good to me, the twins, that, that I never forgot them. They were just wonderful. We had so much fun. They had pigs. I remember a black one and a <laughs> yeah. white one. And they had chickens. They yes. had a horse. They had an owl in this big, beautiful barn. There was an owl inside yeah, there that, yes. <laughs> that we would try and see her at night right. or hear her at night. It was so much fun. The barn was huge. Mm, huge. You know, it had the, uh, the, hay, uh, the loft on top, and then we would, your brothers would come swinging. Yes. They were so bad. <laughs> They'd get up on top and they would just come swinging down on the ropes. Oh my goodness. And Sylvia, I remember, was always yelling at them, saying, stop it, you should know better. <laughs> Soon the Mendez family moved back to Santa Ana. Sema Munamitsu and his family threw themselves into rebuilding their lives in Westminster. My father was a very go-getter, you know. In his mind, he, he came, he says, he came to this country to succeed, and that was his goal. Quietly, Sema helped other Japanese-American families start their lives over again, especially families that had lost their home and land because of the internment. After the Mendes left the house, we moved into the, our original home, and then we took in uh, one, three Japanese families that were coming home from camp. So they were, we, my father allowed them to stay there and start their lives over again. Tad joined his father in building the farm business and acquiring other properties. The Munumitsus became leaders in the farming community in Orange County, along with a number of other Japanese-American families. Eventually, Janice chose to pursue a career in the grocery industry, a choice that eventually led to top executive positions in major corporations. I worked for Hunt Wesson, uh, which had been for, I think, 52 years in Fullerton, California. And um, I, when I was working there, there were three of us. Uh, two guys who were in field operations, and I was the only one at headquarters where our fathers had actually grown tomatoes for hunts. Even deeper than the farming legacy was the legacy of generosity Janice and her generation received from her grandfather, Sema, and her father, Tad, as well as her mother, her uncle and aunts, and the rest of the generation that lived through the internment. My grandfather, I think, was very, well, I know, he was very generous. Um, when he died and when my father died, uh, Many people came up to us, and, and they were they had a lot of friends. They were very outgoing. They had lots of friends, and um, and they had been in this area a long time too. So your friends are all nearby, and uh, but a lot of people came up and said, you know, your grandfather really helped us when we needed help. Janice eventually resigned from her corporate position and began serving in philanthropic work. She reflects on how her childhood experiences shaped her work to encourage those with resources to share with those in need of opportunity. In our generous giving programs, there's a question, and it's um, tell a story before the age of 12 that you remember that helped to shape your view of money or giving or wealth. And um, the one I usually tell is that 
it was almost like a Japanese family hobby that if we had beans that we were growing, we would take the nicest ones and we would go around and take it to all of our friends. And if um, we had strawberries, we would do the same thing. And if they had celery, they would bring it to us. So the Murumitsu family faced the injustices of the internment and like so many other Japanese American families, overcame through resilience, education, and generosity. This is not to minimize the pain and trauma experienced by so many during the forced relocation and incarceration, nor does it in any way justify the actions that were taken both by the executive branch and by the judicial branch to allow these injustices. What those legal opinions mean to me as a judge is that they are, as another judge later said, that they are cautionary tales. Um, the Korematsu decision 40 years later was overturned by Judge of the Northern District of California. And in her written decision, she called it a cautionary tale. And what she meant by that, I believe, was that those of us who are responsible for upholding the law, upholding the con Constitution of the United States, we cannot allow ourselves to fail to cast a critical eye, a discerning, careful, critical, judgmental eye on the cases that are brought before us. Because when we do that, I think that the judges fail to carry out their responsibility as a member of a co-equal branch of government. The Japanese American community and supporters of civil rights advocated for a recognition of the injustice of the internment, and they eventually were successful. On August 10, 1988, 42 years after the last internment camp closed, President Ronald Reagan signed a bill providing restitution for the wartime internment of Japanese-American civilians. Here are excerpts of President Reagan's remarks from that day. Thank you all very much. Members of Congress and distinguished guests, my fellow Americans, we gather here today to right a grave wrong. More than 40 years ago, shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 120,000 persons of Japanese ancestry living in the United States were forcibly removed from their homes and placed in makeshift internment camps. This action was taken without trial, without jury. It was based solely on race, for these 120,000 were Americans of Japanese descent. For throughout the war, Japanese Americans in the tens of thousands remained utterly loyal to the United States. Indeed, scores of Japanese Americans volunteered for our armed forces, many stepping forward in the internment camps themselves. The 442nd Regimental Combat Team, made up entirely of Japanese Americans, served with immense distinction to defend this nation, their nation. Yet back at home, the soldiers' families were being denied the very freedom for which so many of the soldiers themselves were laying down their lives. The legislation that I am about to sign provides for a restitution payment to each of the 60,000 survivors, Japanese surviving Japanese Americans of the 120,000 who were relocated or detained. Yet no payment can make up for those lost years. So what is most important in this bill has less to do with property than with honor. For here, we admit a wrong. Here, we reaffirm our commitment as a nation to equal justice under the law. Thank you and God bless you. And now let me sign H.R. 442, so fittingly named in honor of the 442nd. Mr. President. 
People like Aki Munamitsu Nakauchi and Sylvia Mendez and their families show us what it means to live a resilient and generous life in the face of hardship. Author Winifred Conkling wrote a wonderful children's book about their friendship entitled Sylvia and Aki. Ah, I want to show you something you won't believe what. But this, this book is taught in schools all over the United States. I was told that my niece's friend who teaches in Corona del Mar mm -hmm, mm -hmm. has this has become a learning tool in her class. This teacher sent me this yesterday where she ordered all these books. Look how many oh books she ordered. Oh my goodness. Wow. And she says, she said, uh, so excited about the arrival of my class, of my class set about Sylvia Naki books. Looking forward to sharing their story with my students and opening the discussion and hoping for change. Yeah. See, I told you, it's like, we could be apart for 20 years and it'd be the same. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, really, yeah, it hasn't changed over oh the years God. at all. The next generation carries forward the legacy of generosity established by Sema and Masako, carried on by Aki and Tad and their siblings, and moved forward by Janice and her generation. Now, Aki's two grandchildren are both school teachers. My granddaughter, she was a teacher of the year, and she was only like 26, but she, she loves it. She loves the teaching. And she teaches in an area that's a little depressed. She says, yeah, I've learned a lot about how those kids that, you know, that don't re that really don't have enough. She's like my father. This is Aki's story. And this is the Munamitsu family legacy. Resilience, education, and generosity. Thanks for joining us for the Deeper Learning Podcast. Exploring stories like this one helps us think more deeply about life, learning, and education. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us at communications at ocde.us. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Internment camp experiences have been powerfully documented in books like Farewell to Manzanar, Years of Infamy, and in the documentary For the Sake of the Children. Another documentary, Children of the Camps, probes the long-lasting emotional impact of internment, especially for those who never felt like they could talk about the experience. You can find all the resources on this episode, including references to the books and videos we mentioned, at newsroom.ocde.us. The Deeper Learning Podcast is a production of the Orange County Department of Education. Thanks to our county superintendent, Dr. Almi Harris, Judge Douglas Hachimonji, Janice Munamitsu, and special thanks to Aki Munamitsu Nakauchi and Sylvia Mendez. Thanks also to our podcast team, Ian Hannigan, Laura Watson, Greg Lammers, Daru Sisavath, Jan Mackey, and Shane Klein. And thanks to Sandra Roby, Marlene Shigakawa, and Julie Montgomery. We'll see you next time on the Deeper Learning Podcast.